So uh, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. We'll be reading the first, three, or first seven verses of chapter 3. And brethren, these are indeed the very words of God himself, those which he has preserved down through the ages and annals of time for us to hear this morning, this very moment, this very hour. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filtered lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth, ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we again are so grateful for your word. And uh, this morning we've read now the qualifications of one whom you would call to be an elder, a overseer, a bishop in the church. And uh, Father, we know that you don't change, your word does not change, and so these glorious standards, if you will, of the office have indeed been brought forth from your mind. And uh, Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we pray as uh, Dean comes, as the preacher comes, that as he has studied uh, these things in depth, and I know that he has, and Father, we pray that he will be used of you this morning to um, convey the depths of these truths and the importance of them, uh, for sure. And uh, Lord, again, we thank you, and we're so blessed to be here this morning by your providence, to sit together, to, as we have just sung uh, songs, hymns, and spiritual songs unto you, that we would be so blessed to be able to sing to the God of the Bible alone, that we would now be able to sit together and hear the words of the, of the Lord God himself, you. And so, Father, we again are blessed in that. Use them, Lord, to convict the saint, uh, Lord, to edify the saint, to convict the sinners, and, uh, Lord, to open the ears of your lost sheep. We ask now and pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. This morning, we are <clears throat> continuing our series on church leadership, and this is our fourth and last message in this short series, but before we start, let me just remind us what we looked at so far. The first message that we had, we talked about the fact that the local churches are to be led by a plurality of bishops, also known as elders or pastors, and we see that in the New Testament. In fact, every church that we see in the New Testament where their church leadership is talked about, that's what we see every single time. Then we looked at in our second message what the nature of the New Testament churches were. And when we looked at how they were to function, we talked about how a plurality of elders best fits in with the way that those churches are to function. And then the last message that we had, we saw that only males, only men were to be appointed to that office. We talked about how men and women who are believers in the church, have different callings, different gifts, and different areas where they are to use those gifts, but specifically the office of overseer is just to be filled by men in the congregation. Now, in our last message, we want to look at the qualifications for bishops, which are found here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. You can also see in the book of Titus, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, a similar list there is given. But in our message now, we want to just exposit this passage of scripture and examine these qualifications and in the end we'll mention just some details that are in Titus that are not included in this list here in 1st Timothy. Now remember 1st Timothy here is Paul writing to Timothy who's ministering at the church at Ephesus and so he talks about 
these qualifications. You could also say characteristics of uh, men who would be potentially uh, bishops in the congregation there at Ephesus. And so he lays out the qualifications here for these. So Timothy was familiar with them. And so he would again understand who were to be the bishops there in the church at Ephesus. Let's just begin this morning in verse number one, which doesn't include a qualification, but a very important statement. Verse number one, Paul writes, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Again, this isn't necessarily, you could say a qualification, but it does describe the one who is, you could say, called to this office of overseer in the local church. We know in scripture, there's examples where God has directly called men to preach. You think of Acts chapter 9, where Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he directly calls him into service. Also, you can think of Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, I believe it is, where you have Barnabas and Saul are directly called to a particular mission or evangelistic work. The Holy Spirit made it directly known there to the church in Antioch. And you can also read the case with uh, Timothy himself. 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul mentions how there was prophetic utterances made concerning Timothy's service when he was appointed to his ministry. So we see there are times in the New Testament where, yes, God directly calls men to certain ministries. But throughout history, this is not the common way to discern if somebody is called to a particular work in the church. So this verse is very important because here we have a common way in which one can discern if a particular man is called to this office in the local church. We should not expect there necessarily to be direct callings by God most of the time. But we can look at these characteristics here and see, is this person called to the office? Two things here. Number one we see there will be an outward pursual of the office. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office. Now the Greek here, it can be also be translated here as aspire to the office. It refers to an outward pursual of the office. So there's the outward pursuing, but then also there's the inward desire. If a man desire or aspire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. So if a man is truly called by God to this office in the local church, he will not need anyone to pressure him to do it. Uh, No one will have to make him feel guilty if he decides to do some other work in the local church in service to the Lord. But there will be an inward desire for the office. There will be maybe you could say an irresistible drawing to the office. And the motive being to shepherd God's people faithfully and to see God honored and glorified. That's where the, that, that will be mixed in there with the desire. There shouldn't be any wrong or sinful motives that are linked with that desire. If there is no inward desire for the office, it is clear evidence that one should not aspire to that office in the local church either. So we shouldn't expect necessarily to hear a audible voice or prophetic utterances made concerning a particular call to the office today and throughout most of history. But nevertheless, one way in which the calling can be discerned is, is there an inward desire for it with right motives, leading to an outward pursual of the office in the church? That's one way of discerning this. But then secondly, if this is true of a particular man in the church, that he should become a part of the eldership, There are characteristics that will be there in his life. And so the church has the responsibility to examine the man. And if those qualifications and characteristics are there, then you also have further evidence that the calling to this office is there for that particular individual. So let's look at the first qualification in verse number two. A bishop then must be blameless. There's the first qualification, blamelessness. Blameless in the original language here, the word translated as blameless literally means not able to be handled. You could kind of have the picture here of a man 
where you can grab him and, and pull him down like, like, like you can pull on a handle. The qualification speaks to the fact then that there is to be no blatant sin in the life of an overseer that one could honestly charge him with and pull him down with. That's the picture here. There is to be no disgrace or blight on either his character or his conduct. This is very important when we consider what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 3. The elders are to be in samples or examples to the flock. So if they're going to be examples for God's people to follow, they must be blameless. There is to be no blatant sin in the life of an elder that is open for all to see, leading to contamination to the flock. I mean, it's obvious that if the elder or bishop has blatant sin in his life and he's influential, that that can contaminate the church in many ways. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5. And so we have to keep that in mind. So this qualification is very important. The term here, blameless, can also be rendered as above reproach. That's a different way you could translate this. Only when the elder is above reproach can he lead others in the way of righteousness. We have a description of what blamelessness is in the life of Job. Job 1.1, I'll just quote that here for you, because even though he's an Old Testament believer, he gives us a biblical example of what it is to be blameless. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect, or it could be translated as blameless and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So there's the description of a blameless man. In his life, he's not perfect, but in his life, he's a person who fears God, he turns away from evil, and he walks in righteousness. That's the basic lifestyle of the one who is blameless. In fact, this is actually to be the biblical standard for all believers, not just, of course, elders in a church, but listen to Philippians 2.15. Listen to what Paul writes there concerning all Christians. He says, we are to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So if this is the standard for all of us, all men and women in the congregation, if someone is going to be a potential bishop in the church, it's essential that then this is the case in his life as well. At times, this is not always the case in the life of believers because of disobedience on our part, but it must be the case for the one who would be a overseer in the church. This must be the standard. Now, let's just avoid those some misunderstandings. As I mentioned, blamelessness does not mean sinless perfection. We have many passages in Scripture that make it clear that such a standard is impossible in this life. So we're not talking about that. Secondly, we're also not talking about blamelessness prior to conversion. At times, this has been taught that if a person was not blameless prior to their conversion, they can never be blameless even in their life as a Christian and therefore should not enter the office. Just one example of this, I can remember some years ago I was uh, in conversations at times with a man who was a member of a particular cult that's common throughout Africa, and it's here as well. And he, we, for some reason, we were talking about the office of the bishop, and he said to me that he could never be appointed to that office because before his conversion, he had punched somebody. And so because of that, he was a brawler. And you see in the qualifications that the elder can't be a brawler, so he could never be a bishop in his church. Now, that's a cult, but I'm just using that as an example. They have their anti-Trinitarians and so forth. But such is not the meaning here of blamelessness in this passage. I want you just to consider Paul the Apostle for a moment. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says in his previous life, before he was a Christian, before he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, as the King James uses that, that, that could be translated as a violent aggressor, you see. So if that would be Paul's meaning here concerning not being a brawler or even being blameless, Paul would be disqualifying himself. That simply isn't the case. Listen also to Acts 26 and verse 9. Paul said that he sought to do many things contrary to the name 
of Jesus of Nazareth. And then in chapter 22, verse 4, it says he persecuted believers unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. That was Paul's life. That wouldn't be considered a blameless life by biblical standards. But in 1 Timothy 1.12, Paul says that God had put him into service or put him into ministry. You also have some other examples. Think of two of the apostles. Think about Matthew, who was a tax collector prior to Christ calling him to himself. Now, tax collectors were looked down upon more than almost anyone else in society because they were seen as traitors. They were very greedy, very immoral oftentimes, and Matthew had come from that people as a tax collector. But he was not only called to salvation, but also to be an apostle. And eventually, if you read through church history, a, a missionary outside of Israel. And then also you have Simon, who was a zealot. That doesn't mean that he was enthusiastic. A zealot, if you know the history there, was a group in Israel that was basically a terrorist group that murdered people. And we don't know if Simon had actually murdered someone or not, but he was a part of that group. And then he was called not only to conversion to Christ, but also to ministry. So you have all these examples here. And so because of that, blamelessness here does not refer to life necessarily before conversion, but the issue is one's reputation as a Christian. How do they live as a believer? John Calvin sums up this qualification I thought very well. Let me just read this to you here. There will be no one found among men that is free from every vice, but it is one thing to be blemished with ordinary vices which do not hurt the reputation because they are found in men of the highest excellence. And another thing to have a disgraceful name or to be stained with any baseness in order, therefore, that a bishop may not be without authority, he enjoins that there shall be made a selection of one who has a good and honorable reputation and not chargeable with any remarkable vice. It's a good way to put it. That really sums up the qualification here of blamelessness. Now, in verse 2, we come to the second qualification. A bishop then must be blameless, and then here... Paul, moved by the Spirit, to, was to write, the husband of one wife. Now, this is a very important qualification because when you look here in this list and in the list in the book of Titus, and then later in the chapter, the list for qualifications for deacons, this appears pretty much at the top of all of the lists. And so we should think about what is this qualification and why is it so important. The phrase could be translated from the Greek as one woman man, as one wife husband, or as it is here, husband of one wife. The original language itself, and this is important, isn't referring to marital status, but rather to purity from all kinds of fornication. That's why one woman man is the most, really the most literal translation that you could bring out. It forbids having all unlawful relations with women. So the potential elder or bishop cannot be a womanizer, cannot be a fornicator, cannot be an adulterer. That's obvious. Uh, you could apply it to our, I think, our modern-day context concerning the issue of pornography. Can't be someone who's addicted to pornography or who uh, struggles with those things. He is to be a man who's living in Purity, that's the point. This is also really important when you consider the whole issues of scandals and the reproach that this can bring on a church. We know in our society today, we have a lot of scandals going on, not just in the Roman Catholic Church, but churches that are Protestant, different denominations, non-denominational. You hear it almost every week, it seems like. And so this is very important because men fall oftentimes who are in leadership, drugs, drug abuse, alcohol, stealing money, and oftentimes in this issue as well. This isn't the first time in history that we see this. 
in the Middle Ages even, if you know anything about the 8th and 9th centuries, that was the time that is known in history in the Roman Catholic Church as the pornocracy because of the immorality of the popes. And this was just commonly known by the public for popes to have children, obviously outside of wedlock because they weren't married, to have several mistresses. This was a common thing, and it is very sad. But here you have this qualification clearly given. One way that the enemy can bring damage to churches is when the leadership is not living in purity. So if a bishop is married, which most likely would be the case, he must be living in faithfulness with his wife in the marriage covenant. If there is some sort of scandal, he should step down. And he must have a good reputation in this area to be in this office. Now, let me also mention some misunderstandings that are promoted sometimes concerning this qualification as well. And the reason why every one of these interpretations of this qualification is an error is because it's misunderstood to think that this qualification is referring to marital status. There's three misunderstandings. Number one, there are many who teach that this qualification is saying that an elder must be married. Now, again, the problem is the original language is not talking about marital status. It's not saying that this must be a man who has a wife. The point is a one-woman man. Now, you have practical issues. What if the wife of an elder dies? Does that mean now he must step down because he's no longer the husband of one wife? But nevertheless, it's simply not what the language is talking about. Also, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 34 and 35, there are great advantages to the single life if you're called to that. Now, not everybody is. But there are great advantages concerning distractiveness is basically not as much there when you are serving the Lord. It removes a lot of those distractions and earthly cares that we have. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 7. Also, apostles did function as elders in the local church. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 that he was an apostle. And in chapter 5 of that same letter, verse 1, he writes about how he also was an elder. The apostles were pastors also in the local churches. What's interesting is, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8 and chapter 9 and verse 5, Paul himself was single. And so if Paul here meant that a church leader must be married, he again would have been disqualifying himself. Now, some have argued that Paul absolutely had to have been married before because of his position there amongst the Jews prior to his conversion to Christ. But even if that's the case, while he was ministering, he was single. And that is very clear. Second misunderstanding is oftentimes it is said that this qualification refers to the issue of polygamy having more than one wife at a time. Now, when you look in the Old Testament, many people think of the examples of Abraham, Jacob, David, Elkanah, and so forth, who had more than one wife at a time. And the argument is here, Paul is forbidding that to take place in the church leadership. Well, there's a problem again. Number one, the qualification isn't referring to marital status. Secondly, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9, when Paul is talking about widows, who are qualified to be financially supported by the church. A related phrase is used for what we have here, the husband of one wife. It says there that she must have been the wife of one man. Now, the issue of palandry, which is a woman having more than one husband at a time, was an extremely rare practice in the ancient world, even in this context. So it's very doubtful that Paul has that in mind when he's saying that this widow is to be the wife of one man. The point is, is that when she was married, was she living in purity in her marriage? And that really is the point. And so when he's talking here about a man being the husband of one wife, that's what he's talking about. Now, this is an important subject to discuss concerning other topics in scripture. But my point is, is that's not the idea here that Paul has. And then number three, oftentimes it is said that this qualification forbids men who were divorced and remarried as well. Now, let me just say a few things here before I 
try to give a correction concerning that. First of all, in this church, we take the subject of divorce and divorce and remarriage very seriously. I heard one pastor put it this way before, and I think we could say that it's the case in this church as well, in most circumstances. In most circumstances, if there is a divorce that is happening in this congregation, somebody is going to be under church discipline. might be both spouses. It might just be one if there's an innocent party. Because if there is a divorce going on where there was immorality that's unrepentant, that individual who's committing the immorality will be under church discipline. If there is a divorce happening for an illegitimate reason, that person will also be put under church discipline. This is not to be tolerated among the people of God. So this also, like polygamy, is an important subject. But is that the issue that Paul has in mind here? Well, again, the original language is not talking about marital status. It's not talking about the number of spouses in that way, but rather purity from all kinds of fornication. Let me just give you some questions and answers here to show out how if we interpret this qualification to be that, how this leads to problems. Let me ask you this question. If, if a man was married to a woman and the spouse dies, and he remarries someone else, which is allowed, if you read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, that's clearly allowed, is he then disqualified from being a bishop in a local church? Well, most people would respond by saying, well, no, that's not the case. Uh, I would respond by saying, well, why not? Doesn't it say here that he has to be the husband of one wife. You're focused on that number one in marital status. Well, they'd respond by saying, well, no, because that's not a sin. If his spouse dies, surely he can remarry. But we're talking here about divorce and remarriage. Well, now I ask this. Where do you find divorce and remarriage in the text? It's not there. In reality, we add that to the text. That's not what this qualification is talking about. In fact, the subject of divorce and remarriage is never, never appears in the qualifications at all. And that's important for us to remember. Now, if there is a man who potentially is to be a bishop in a local congregation, there are questions that need to be asked. When did the divorce and remarriage take place? Before conversion? After conversion? Why? did the divorce and remarriage take place? How is this man's household now? Is it in order? Because you see in verses 4 and 5 of this passage, the household must be in order. So those are questions that all need to be asked, and the situation then must be examined in that way. But the qualification in and of itself is actually not referring to that subject. It's not referring to marital status it's referring to living in purity with one's spouse. Now let's look at the third qualification. Vigilant. Vigilant. He must be blameless, the husband of one wife. He must be vigilant. Now this literally means wineless. Wineless. It is used here in reference to mental stability. So the man who is going to be in the eldership, he must be self-controlled, stable-minded, because he's going to have to face serious problems and pressures. He's going to have very important decisions to make. So he must be clear-headed and self-restrained. He also has to have emotional stability, because if he doesn't have emotional stability, he can more easily be deceived by the enemy, by Satan, and by false teachers, and that can damage the flock. So he must be mentally stable. Then the fourth qualification, it says here he must be sober. Now, that simply means serious-minded. When it comes to doctrinal issues, spiritual matters, he must be someone who takes these things seriously. He also must be serious in his life. His priorities have to be in order because he has to be able to be example to the believers to also have a right priority in their lives. A sober-minded man also oftentimes will not fall into pride and authoritarianism because he takes the situation he's in very seriously. Then the fifth qualification, he must be a man who is of good behavior. And obviously, if a man is to lead others in the flock to good behavior, he must be 
an individual that has good behavior. He must be able to be respected. And if he has good behavior, then such a man can be respected. You could turn here just a page over. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12 and listen to the counsel here that Paul gives to Timothy. He says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So if Timothy was to earn the respect of others, he had to be a man who was of good behavior. He was probably in his 30s here, from what we understand from history. Maybe his 40s, but probably his 30s. And so how could he be respected if he was a man of good behavior? David also gives us a wonderful example of this in 1 Samuel 18.30. Just listen to this principle here. Then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass, after they went forth, that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. There's the King James translation there. Set by means he was highly esteemed, highly esteemed because of his behavior. And so good behavior leads to respect. And so that must be true here in the life of the elders as well. Sixth qualification here in the verse, given to hospitality. He must be given hospitality. The original language here simply means love of strangers, which is always an important virtue we see throughout Scripture. Job says in Job 31, 32, the stranger did not lodge in the street, but I opened my doors to the traveler. Uh, just a conversation came up yesterday between me and another brother here in this church, and we talked about different church groups. And I, I talked about how there are certain uh, churches that are very hospitable. In fact, they will even, uh, when, when people in their fellowship are traveling, they will have their house open for them to go into if they don't want to stay in a hotel or something. This is just something that oftentimes is missing from our society uh, today. But it should be something that is important to us as believers. And it must be true then for elders of the congregation if they're to lead in that example. In Mark chapter 1, Verses 29 through 31, you can read there when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And when she's healed, what does she do? She gets up and she ministers to the men there that were in the house. 1 Timothy 5.10, if a widow was to be supported by the church, she had to be a woman who had lodged strangers, a woman who had been given to hospitality. So we see this as a very important virtue in Scripture. The home of the bishop must be open so others can see his spiritual character and hospitality always displays genuine Christian love as well. And then finally, the last qualification in this verse, he must be a man who is apt to teach. This is the only qualification that is missing from the list for deacons. You have all those moral qualifications for deacons, but it's not mentioned that a deacon must be apt to teach, but it is essential for those who are bishops because they will be instructing the congregation in the word. Listen to some other verses as well. Titus 2.1, the church leaders must be able to speak the things which become sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.6, Paul reminded Timothy to be nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. And then finally, in the list of qualifications in Titus 1.9, listen to what one of those qualifications were. The bishop must hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. That's refute false teachings and convince those who are going astray. So he has to be apt to teach. Let me also just give one Old Testament example because I think it's such a wonderful example for bishops in the New Testament. That's the example of Ezra. Listen to Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. It says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So you see there, first he studied the word, then he made sure he was living the word himself, and then he could teach the word in Israel. What a wonderful example today for bishops. They're to know the word, they're to live the word, and then they can teach the word as well. 
While fathers instruct their children at home, their families, Ephesians 6, 4. An elder must be able not only to instruct his family, but to feed an entire congregation of believers for their edification, that they might be nourished in the word of God. We have many times in here encouraged the fathers to lead your families in family devotions. Teach them the scriptures. You don't have to be a scholar, but it might be a 10-minute Bible lesson. And that's essential for fathers to be able to do that. But an elder must be able to edify the flock in a sermon. And that's where that comes in. He must be able to do that. Moving on to verse 3. Verses 2 and 3, we have a lot of qualifications here, but there's less given in verses 4 through 7. So let's go through verse 3. Next qualification, not given to wine. Now, I talked to Mike and Howard about this. Uh, we have a little bit of a disagreement here amongst the elders. Mike and Howard are on one side, and I'm by myself over here. <laughs> but uh, so we, whenever the elders have a disagreement, we kind of want to mention that from, from the pulpit. We'll mention what the disagreement is, and then you can study that out on your own to uh, see kind of where you come up on this. But there are some who believe, like, like Mike and Howard, that an elder should never drink wine, that it, it's, it's not, never right for him to do so. Personally, I don't drink alcohol. Uh, we don't have it in our house. I, I don't think that an elder can never drink, like, say, a glass of wine. I don't think that that's uh, not allowed for him. But let me just mention a few things. Wine was a common drink we know in the ancient world. Wine was often diluted with water to be between one-third and one-tenth of its normal strength. And in this way, water was safer to drink, and it could easily quench one's thirst without becoming drunk. And a lot of times people will look at, and I'm not saying Mike and Howard do this, but a lot of times people will look at wine in the New Testament and say it was simply grape juice. Actually, in the context, a lot of times that wasn't the case. Even in Acts chapter 2, verse 13, you can read there that uh, new wine fermented very quickly, especially in that Middle Eastern uh, culture. You see that wine is allowed and strong drink is allowed in certain contexts in Scripture. 1 Timothy 5.23, it is allowed for health reasons. You can see that Timothy not just drinking water but using a little wine for the sake of his stomach. And also Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 26, you can read there that wine and strong drink were allowed as the people of God rejoiced before the Lord. You can see that just directly clearly mentioned there. And it was also used, obviously, in, in weddings and so forth. It is forbidden for priests in the Old Testament while they were serving in the tabernacle. You can see that Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. It was also forbidden for those who, who were under the vow of a Nazarite. You can see that in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. But nevertheless, drunkenness is always forbidden and very seriously forbidden. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10, we read that no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of God. That's very clear. And in Galatians 5.21, we read that drunkenness is a work of the flesh. So that is a sin that is absolutely condemned in Scripture. We also have many warnings about wine and strong drink in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 11 and 22, gives a woe pronounces a woe upon those that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink that continue until night till wine inflame them. And then Hosea chapter 4 verse 11 says that these drinks take away the understanding. So one cannot shepherd the church if one is addicted to wine or if one is controlled by wine and strong drink. Simply cannot be. Next qualification, no striker. It says there, the literal meaning of the word is not given to blows. He cannot be a man who is bad-tempered or a man who is out of control in his anger. Again, that's the point. Look with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's just read verses 24 and 25. Look here how the leader in the church is to serve. And the servant of the Lord must not strive... But be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, 
in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. So we know that church leaders will find themselves in very peculiar situations at times. And at times they will uh, be in a tough situation where they need to make decisions. They cannot be men who quickly lose their temper. And that really is the issue. So they must be meek. They must be patient and they must be faithful in that way. The next qualification, not greedy of filthy lucre, that, and, and also not covetous. Simply, they, they can't be greedy for money. That's the point. Now, it's very obvious if a man desires to be appointed to the office of overseer for money, it is a sure sign that he's not called by God to that office. That cannot be the motive, obviously. Love of money in Scripture is actually a sign of false of being a false teacher. 2 Peter 2.14 talks about false teachers are exercised with covetous practices. And Titus 1.11 says they teach the things they do for filthy lucre's sake. Their desire was to get money. Don't we see that today? Just turn on the Christian television stations. Money, money, money. The Christian television stations today are filled with people who are false teachers greedy of money. That just is the case. But they are actually disqualified from that office. Also, a few other things. Money, it's, the love of money is a mark of worldliness in Scripture. You cannot love God and the world in 1 John 2.15. You can't serve God and mammon, Jesus says in Matthew 6.24. Listen to some of the examples of the church leaders in the New Testament. Peter said, silver and gold have I none. He wasn't in the apostleship for money. Paul, in Acts 20 and verse 33, said, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. That was his testimony as a church leader. And just basic Christian living. This is to be the case for all Christians. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, having food and raiment, let us be content. Hebrews 13.5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. And of course, we all know the verse in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all evil. So if this is true of all Christians, this is to be the standard, must be the standard for a church leader who can be in a position, even if he's being supported in the local church, he can at times be tempted to just want money. He can be tempted to water down the word so that more people come so that there is more money. So this simply can't be the case. And then finally, he must be a man who is patient, says here in verse 3, patient. This is the exact opposite of being a man who seeks personal retaliation when wronged. It is an absolute call to surrender all personal rights, to love his enemies, to pray for those who persecute him, and to be patient in seeing growth in the believers. And then, as I mentioned earlier, it says here, not a brawler. He can't be a man who seeks to stir up strife and conflict in a local church. This would show a lack of love for Christ's people and little seriousness concerning eternal matters. The Lord hates those who sow discord among brethren. It says in Proverbs 6, so it's very serious. Believers are to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Titus 3, 2 says that. So again, that's the case for all believers. This must be the case for church leaders, obviously. Then finally, brethren, let's look at verses 4 and 5. Now, we've looked at a lot of qualifications just in two verses. When we come down to verses 4 and 5, one qualification only. Two verses here dedicated to one qualification. So let's read both of the verses. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God. Now, obviously, this qualification is clear. If a man is not able to manage his own household properly, then he cannot manage the local church in a way that is honoring to God. But an evidence that he can help manage the church is that he is faithfully managing his own house according to biblical standards as well. Again, this is not a requirement that all elders must be married and have children. 
in the same way that the qualification for elders to be the husbands of one wife is means that they must be married. If this was the case, it seems Paul again would have been disqualifying himself. But in most situations, potential elders will be married and they will have children. If they are not men who manage their own households well, they are not qualified to be appointed to this office. Now that's all really clear. Now, I'm not changing subjects here. I just want to give a list just of eight practical things of a way in which a man can manage his own household properly by biblical standards, because we talk about this. But a question may arise, well, how can men manage their households rightly? Let me just give you eight biblical principles, then we'll get right back into more of this qualification. Number one, and I'm going to give you the scripture references as well, so you know I'm not just pulling some of these out of thin air. Number one, a man is to spiritually lead his own family in the ways of the Lord. That's very clear. Ephesians uh, chapter number six, verse four. That's very, very clear. You can see Genesis 18, 19, the example of Abraham. What did God say of Abraham? He will command his household after him, what? To keep the way of the Lord, to practice justice, this righteousness, and so forth. So there's the example. That's basic number one. A man must lead his household spiritually in the ways of the Lord. Number two, a man must love his own wife as his own body and as Christ loves the church. Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, 1 Peter 3, 7, that's very clear as well. Number three, a man must train his own children in the way they should go. Proverbs 22 and verse number six. And there's a lot of principles there, but he must make sure that his children not only know scripture and biblical standards to live by, but he must be able to train them in having good and decent behavior. Number four, he must work in order to supply for the earthly needs of his household. And you can see that, for example, in Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11. He had to be able to support his wife, a man. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 12, if he doesn't work, he should not eat. 1 Timothy 5, 8, if he doesn't work to supply the needs for his household, he's worse than an infidel. So that's very important as well. Number five, he must be content with his own wife. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. He cannot be a man who is an adulterer. Proverbs 5, 15 through 23, and Matthew 5, 28. He must be content in his marriage. Number six, he must approve or disapprove of commitments made by the members of his own household. Now, you can see this principle clearly in Numbers chapter 30, verses 3 through 8 and verses 13 through 15. He could annul a vow that was made by his wife or by daughters in the home or he could confirm them he had that authority he also had that responsibility as well so he must understand what's going on in his house he must understand commitments that are being made and be able to give counsel and advice or even even keep back the members of his household from doing certain things if he needs to number seven and I, this is very important in our modern day. He must not deny the opportunity for his wife to bear children. And that's very clear. Just one passage, Genesis 38, verses 8 and 9. I once read of a situation where a pastor found himself in a counseling situation with a couple. And they married and they were considering divorce. The wife wanted to leave and she was just emotionally a wreck. Because apparently when they married, they made a mistake. Both of them agreed that they would never have children. That's what the husband, the potential husband wanted. And uh, she agreed to it. Well, after they were married for a couple of years, she couldn't take it no more. She so wanted to bear children. And he wouldn't allow it. And <clears throat> he said to the pastor, I get so sick when I think of having to raise a baby. And he would not give in whatsoever. That's a clear violation of scripture. And that's not leading your household properly then finally number eight overseers must be able to oversee the marriages of their children as well genesis 24 1 through 9 you have that with abraham first corinthians 7 36 through 38 you also see those responsibilities given as well so this is what simply what we call faithful household management you could dig into a lot of these principles even more but just with our lack of time this is faithful household management this is 
faithful example to the rest of the flock. Now, here's the qualification, but now let's correct any misunderstandings sometimes that are out there as well. The qualification does not mean that all of the children of an overseer must be saved or that he is necessarily disqualified if a child rejects the Christian faith as an adult. Because ultimately, salvation is a supernatural work of a sovereign God. It is impossible for faithful fathers to guarantee that their children will become believers. They have no way of guaranteeing that. Just some examples of godly leaders in Scripture who had children who were disobedient. Aaron was a faithful high priest, but he had disobedient sons who actually were put to death for their disobedience. Leviticus 10, 1 through 7. Samuel was a blameless man in Scripture. But you can see 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 5, and 1 Samuel 12, 1 through 5, this blameless man and this blameless leader had unbelieving sons. So at times, parents who are faithful worshipers and servants of the Lord, at times their children won't worship the God that their parents do, and that's sad. We see that in Scripture. In fact, there is no earthly father who could be more faithful than God. Yet the Lord himself could testify of his rebellious people in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2. He said, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. A perfect father. So a perfect father can have disobedient children. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul compares the local church to a house. Even though a church may have faithful bishops, this is not a guarantee that no one in the church will eventually commit apostasy. So let's say that some in the church commit apostasy. Does this mean all the bishops should step down? Well, of course not. So in the same way in a household, if the household is being managed rightly, but you have children who reject the faith, that does not necessarily mean that one must step down from leadership, obviously. And so that's the point. A family may have a faithful Christian father, but this is no guarantee that none of his children may wander away. Proverbs 22.6, obviously train up a child in the way he should go when he is old, he will not depart from it, is another truthful and general statement in the book of Proverbs that is often fulfilled in the lives of Christian families. But never saying, like so many of the sayings in Proverbs, a guarantee result of faithfulness. Look over at Titus chapter 1 and verse 6 for a moment. I want you to look at this qualification as it's repeated there. Look at verse 6. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. I think the King James translators did an excellent job here. At times this is translated as believing children. Here the King James translates it as faithful children. That's a translation of the Greek word pistos. It can be translated as act actively believing but also as passively as faithful, trustworthy, or dutiful children. And that's what it would be talking about here. The point is, it's not distinguishing between believing and unbelieving adult children, but between obedient and disobedient children in the home. So I think the translators of the King James got it right there. In this way, an elder must be having his children in subjection with all gravity. It lines right up with what we read back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, having them in subjection, having the children as faithful and obedient members of the house. Let me finally quote to you from John Gill the way that he described this qualification. He said this, By faithful children cannot be meant converted ones or true believers in Christ, for it is not in the power of men to make their children such. And their not being so can never be an objection to their being elders, if otherwise qualified. At most, the phrase can only intend that they should be brought up in the faith, in the principles, doctrines, and ways of Christianity, or in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's John Gill. If a local church encounters a situation where children of an elder are not well controlled, but rebellious, then the elder should step down. He has to have his, his household in good management first. If the children of an overseer drift into lies of, unbel uh, drift into lives of unbelief as adults, the situation then should be examined by the church and by the elders. If weaknesses in the home have been a stumbling block leading to rejection of the gospel by his children, 
then he should step down from the office. But if it is obvious that the pastor has been a strong spiritual leader in his home and that he is faithfully managing his own household according to biblical principles, he is not disqualified from the office because of unbelief in his children who were once in his home. Now look at verse 6. We have two qualifications left, and then we'll be finished. 1 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 6. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's obviously a very delicate time when one is yet a babe in Christ, when one is a new convert. I mean, think about it. He's just received a new spiritual father, new principles to live by, new convictions, new desires, and a completely different worldview. For the first time, he may be experiencing hostility from the world and from his own physical family. He may yet have many spiritual weaknesses that he is not even knowledgeable about because of the deceitfulness of his own heart. So we have to be really careful. A new convert may be zealous. They may be knowledgeable, but they're yet immature. And that's important. If they're put in situations that are spiritually challenging to handle, it sets him up for falling into the sin of pride, the very sin that led to Satan's fall. So we have to protect new converts for that. In that. Oftentimes, even in our modern day where you have people who are well-known in the culture, maybe singers or actors or something who become Christians, they're put into the highlight. and That's, that's not good. Oftentimes, it leads to bad things in their lives. So they need to be discipled for a time. And then other situations of leadership and positions can follow. There is not an exact timetable given, though. Uh, there's not an exact age requirement, but the issue is one of spiritual maturity, and that's what needs to be examined. And finally, last verse, verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. As we saw earlier, a good reputation must be the goal of all believers. In this way, we put to silence the accusations of the world. When we walk honestly before the unbelievers, we have that testimony of the grace of Christ. But if this is the standard, again, for all believers, it's necessary for pastors. Remember, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's the roaring lion that seeks someone to devour. And he can easily use inconsistencies in the life of a bishop, which would lead to lies, anger, and revenge. A godly life must be there in the life of the elder so no one in the world can legitimately challenge him as being an immoral person and in this way to bring down the reputation of Christians. And so that's very, very clear. This is not to say that unbelievers won't falsely accuse church leaders. It's not to say that unbelievers will hate, won't hate or persecute them but there should be nothing that they can legitimately charge the elder with in the way that he is living. So brethren, here are the qualifications. Let me just mention in Titus chapter one, it's mentioned that an elder cannot be soon angry, not self, uh, he must be self-controlled. He must be a lover of good men and faithful in holding to sound doctrine. So first Timothy one or 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, these are the qualifications. Let me just mention a few practical points before we're finished. Number one, once again, just like we saw last time in our message on church leadership, we see again in this passage that the office of bishop or pastor is reserved only for men in the congregation. We saw that last time in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we saw that also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, but we see it here in this passage again as well. I mean, think about it. It says here that the bishop must be the husband of one wife. It doesn't use the phrase, the wife of one man, like is used in 1 Timothy 5, 9 for widows. It says here simply husband of one wife. It's impossible for a woman to be the husband of one wife. And that's clear. But also think about in this passage, verses 4 and 5. He must be one that ruleth his own house, having his children in subjection. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? This is clearly men. 
leading the house. You know, I've wondered sometimes when there are these so-called women pastors, who leads family devotions, if there even are family devotions? Who's leading the house? You see how backwards and how demonic this is? It's a complete reversal of everything that God intended and that God commands us in the ways that he commands us to live and in the way that he commands his church to function. In fact, the phrase husband of one wife is used in both lists of qualifications for elders and in the list of qualifications for deacons. Never is wife of one man used in those lists. Only for those who would be widows who are supported by the church. Therefore, any women ordination into this office is direct disobedience to the word of God. It's not just a simple misunderstanding. It is direct disobedience to the word of God. And a really important practical point is here, brethren, don't ever be caught up in the downgrade. And don't ever compromise in your mind to think it's just a simple mistake. No, it is direct rebellion against the word of God. Second practical point. We've seen here many responsibilities for elders, and also this is the case with deacons as well. But also, let's not fail to remember the responsibilities of the wives of both pastors and deacons as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, look at that verse there. This is in reference to for the deacons, but this also obviously is applicable for the elders as well. Look at this. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. So brethren, wives must be an aid to their husbands. It is not possible for spiritually immature women to be faithful helpers of their husbands who are to function as shepherds and servants in the church. So even for our ladies here, let me just simply ask this question as the elders must ask these questions too for themselves and the deacons. Do you pray for your husband who is in an office in the church, whether pastors or deacons? Do you support him in that God-given role? Do you see your role as important for eternity and for God's glory? Because it is. And if it wasn't, it wouldn't be mentioned here in this passage of Scripture. Listen to what Matthew Henry said. All who are related to ministers must double their care to walk as becomes the gospel of Christ, lest if they in anything walk disorderly, the ministry be blamed. So therefore, it's important for the wives to support their husbands, for the wives to be godly, and also the children that grew up in their homes. They should at least gently know and be taught that they should be of good behavior. You never want your children to think that you want them to behave well simply because you are in an office in the church. But if they do become unruly and rebellious while they are in the home, it is important for them to know that they will be held responsible for that rebelliousness if the man in the house must step down from the office in the church. So typically they have to know that they must be well behaved. Okay, third practical point. I don't think I've emphasized enough, and I probably can't emphasize enough, how important these qualifications are for bishops in the local church. In our modern day, yes, but for any time. But particularly in our modern day, you know why? Because pastors in the culture used to have a lot of influence. And in fact, pastors in their churches used to have a lot of influence. They don't have near the influence that they used to in the culture, or even in their own local church. Think about it once, brethren. Most people in the culture are most influenced by the music they listen to, by the movies they watch, by the news reports that they listen to. They're not usually influenced by pastors, right? Well, the sad reality is that's also the case oftentimes in local churches, by Christians. I would say most Christians are more influenced by the media they listen to, by the things they watch, if they watch anything, by maybe music they listen to, than they are by pastors in local churches. And that's just the reality. That's just the case. So 
if this is the case in our own modern day, and then you put onto it all the scandals that happen in our culture, pastors are not very influential anymore, and nor do many people trust them. So because that's the case, what's the only way that we can counter this is if we have godly men who fit these qualifications, who are just faithful in the office. That's all they can do. And we just pray that the Spirit of God does a work to make sure that the influences that come into the lives of believers, besides the church leaders, are good, honest, faithful influences. Most teenage young adults, they're not children. <laughs> Teenagers aren't children. Most teenagers are more influenced in our modern day, even in churches, by what they see on social media than they are by church leaders. We're living in a different time. Parents have to consider that. This isn't 1910 anymore, where the children were influenced mostly by who? Parents, pastors, and maybe if they had godly teachers. Not the case anymore. So if that's the case, the pastors have to be aware of this, and the parents in the homes have to be aware, how are we training our children concerning who their influences are? That's very important. So the responsibility then lies on the pastors to be faithful examples, godly, faithful in their teaching, and to the parents as well. If they don't respect the church leaders themselves, the children won't. And that only does damage to the family. That only does damage to the children. So all these things are very important. Finally, last practical point. When we consider the gospel itself, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for his church in particular and rose from the dead. Part of that plan was that afterwards the church would be built. And how is it built? It's built through the preaching of the church, the preaching of the gospel by the church, but the believers being edified and equipped for every good work in the church. If the offices are not functioning rightly, if men are not in those offices who are faithfully teaching and living godly lives, then the work of the Lord can be hindered. So when we consider how seriously we take the gospel and how seriously then we should take Christ's church, then we understand how seriously we should take the qualifications for elders and how they are to minister. May we do so in this local church and let us pray that the Lord would obviously raise up laborers and send them into the harvest, but that we would have in our own land godly, faithful preachers, Holy Spirit, empowered preaching and teaching, and godly order in Christ's local churches. Let us pray. Father, we